you can go ahead and have a seat. When I got back to the front here, I realized I had chopped a verse off the beginning and end of our gospel reading. So just to assure you, I do think those are equally inspired and valid passages of scripture. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A famous comic in the New Yorker once depicted a great statue of a proud figure astride a horse rendered in great majesty and glory. Below this intimidating and inspiring figure, an inscription read, soldier, statesman, author, patriot, but still a disappointment to his mother. <laughs> still not enough, still a disappointment. Fleming Rutledge in her sermon on Romans chapter seven points to this cartoon as an expression of this near universal experience and fear of being undone by our parents perhaps more deeply of never making the cut. Romans chapter seven is in many ways contested ground. In the world of biblical studies, there's a lot of debate about precisely what the apostle Paul is describing in the verses before us this morning. Paul here is seeking to defend God's law, the gift of the law given to the people of God at Mount Sinai. But for scholars, there's significant disagreement about the way Paul describes himself as being under the power of sin. The question is whether or not Paul, when he names his own experience being sold to sin and under the, under the power in his body, is describing himself in the present, like life in Christ right now or his life prior to knowing Jesus. And there's scholars lining up on either side of this question, ready to do battle with their pens and word processors. It's dramatic stuff if you're a theology nerd. However, you might answer that question. And my hunch is that Paul is describing his life prior to Christ in these verses. The reading does bring up important questions for us that might connect with our own experience. What is life with Christ supposed to be like? Why? is it so very difficult to live as I know I should, as I want to live? And perhaps above all, can God be trusted? Is he good and trustworthy? As we saw last week, those who are baptized in the name of Jesus are dead to the law of sin. They're wedded to the risen and victorious Christ. That is reality for you today. But that raises these questions personal, corporate questions. Why is sin so prevalent? Why is the shape of my life so deeply out of step with my ideals, with our ideals and convictions? I trust I'm not the only one who grapples with these questions. And in these opening verses, the Apostle Paul paints this picture of sin as this powerful force. It's like that old Van Damme movie, sin is hard to kill. The reality regarding sin and its pervasive power, this reality, its cockroach, rat-like ability to survive and breed is something that both requires no illustration, right? We, we all have this experience of it, but it also requires consistent reminder. We're quick to forget, at least in terms of our own lives. For Paul, as we've seen in these past weeks, sin is this occupying force this congenital infection at work in our bodies, undermining our wills, working against God's good purposes. 
this reality, this constellation of beliefs about sin is at least part of the answer why it is that sin is still so present among those who are in Christ. That sin is like this, as Paul describes, is why active resistance toward it is called for in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, the writer points out for his readers, he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. That language doesn't suggest some simple, straightforward contest. It suggests real struggle, real intention. There's this opposing power that's actively working against you, your good, your flourishing, the flourishing of the people that you love against God's plans at work in you. Resist it, take it seriously, fight it, the writer of Hebrews is suggesting. That Paul names coveting here as his example is striking. Coveting is, of course, an interior attitude. It's not murder, it's not kidnapping, it's not stealing. Actions that you can easily point to and condemn, right? Like, what does coveting look like even, right? Sin, through this illustration, Paul, I think, is making the point that sin is often at work more subtly in ways that we might be too quick to make peace with, right? It's just internal, it's not actively harming anyone. And the Christian tradition does distinguish between various sins and their effects. Murder is not the same as coveting. There is in Christian tradition what's known as moral and venal sins. I'm not saying murder and covet, like it makes no difference, just do them both, whatever. But implicit in Paul's words here today is the simple truth that all sin kills. The passage assumes this inverse relationship between sin and life. As sin increases, life decreases. Where there is sin, death is. There's this trajectory assumed with sin invariably leading from life and goodness, from life with God toward death, darkness to hell. Sin kills. This is why Jesus can say extreme sounding things like if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's not advocating like for self-harm there. He's saying take drastic measures because this stuff will kill you. It will destroy what you love. It will rob you of your full enjoyment of life with God. Offer sin no beachhead, no quarter, he is saying. A legitimate question for us this morning as we hear that is, well, well what does resistance actually look like? A couple, of, a couple of thoughts here. First, resistance to sin might take the form of very basic actions that you're already familiar with elsewhere in your life. If you want to go exercising in the morning, you plan ahead, right? Like you take steps that make that more likely. Leave out your workout clothes, you set an alarm. In the same way, without condemning ourselves, we might just consider the reality of our lives, the patterns of our sin, the patterns of life and thought that we cannot seem to change. And seriously consider what steps might be undertaken to help us live a different path? What steps do I need to do to take that I don't respond with impatience, with cutting remarks when I'm back home after work? What needs to happen so that I don't self-medicate in these destructive, dishonoring of God ways? Is it removing that streaming service or app? Is it not being alone when I'm tired and lonely? Is it reaching out to community? 
It's not cutting off your hand, but removing ourselves from situations, from objects where we know we are at our weakest in temptation. Despite what other benefits we might experience, that's a small way of living out what Jesus commands, resisting sin. Second thought on resistance is resistance might mean laying hold of the truth of who you are in Jesus more fully. The reality that Paul names through this section of Romans is that if you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. You are new creation. The triumph of Jesus is yours. That is a truth that's so good that it's difficult to comprehend. It's difficult to lay hold of in our lives. That's why we need this table weekly. It's why we need each other. Why we need embodied, tangible reminders. It's why we need to hear the gospel time and again. That the gift, the deliverance that is ours in Jesus Christ is really ours. We need active training in the truth that we're no longer slaves to sin. We need reminders, helps to actively draw life from the risen Christ. For many of us, those like thought patterns, those actions that most have their hold on us and make this truth that we're freed from sin so hard to believe, those actions, those thought patterns are often rooted in deep wounds, right? Like in trauma. And we're often then out of that woundedness, out of that brokenness, seeking to feel strong or whole or in control via some action, some pattern of thought that offers relief or escape for a moment, but only drives us deeper into shame, into darkness. For those of us in this situation, I think the act of resistance is to seek healing. Jesus' desire for you is not to keep you from doing bad things, but that you would be made whole, that you would be made new. And the way forward, often in breaking out of that vicious cycle, is to learn to expose what deep hurt is driving this compulsive pattern that you will to change but can't. Bringing that thinking, bringing that woundedness into the light, that healing and new life of Jesus might be received, might be applied to that section in your life, that area in your life. Think of Jesus' healing ministry in the Gospels. So often, those who are sick, who cannot help themselves, are brought to Jesus. That is an act of resistance against sin, against the powers of hell. That's what community is supposed to be doing. That's individual confession, bringing that junk into the light so it can be exposed, so you can receive healing. These acts of resistance are part of God's call upon us in our own lives as the people of God. They're part of what we're called to do, to resist sin. But I feel like Paul's message would be, don't be naive. Don't be naive this morning. The reality that he describes here, the power of sin, is beyond our ability. And if the only remedy we have is our own resistance, our own willpower, we'll end up like that statue, that figure we began with. Not enough. For all our intention, our accountability, a failure and a disappointment. Such is the power of sin. Early on in Romans chapter 8, Paul describes creation like the stuff of reality, the universe itself, locked in sinful stasis, right? Longing to be made new. In our reading this morning, he describes sin as present in your body, 
in the members of your body, in your physical makeup. These comments point further to why sin is so pervasive, so powerful. Yes, we're freed in Christ, but the habits, the reflexes of sin are not always immediately done away with us. I have a friend whose father's testimony is of radical deliverance, immediate deliverance from nicotine addiction at the moment of his conversion to Jesus. It's this amazing story. He was like two packs a day, freed. It's incredible. But my friend, their son, could tell you that their father's struggle against the sin of anger was a lifelong one. And one that was just as connected to their body, right? To reflexes, responses as tobacco. Those in Christ are no longer slaves to sin, but we're still waiting, we're groaning for new creation. And our bodies now are marked, are riven by sin, its appetites, its habits, its reflexes. And we inhabit a world shaped by sin. I was reading this week of James Pennington, a 19th century slave and pastor who used verse 21 of Romans 7 in our reading today to interpret his own experience of oppression. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. That is, he said, though I want to do good to exercise my freedom as one made in the image of God and with all the dignity that carries, to have a family, raise my children as my own, to be free to worship Jesus. The evil of slavery, the evil of these sinful systems supporting it are right there with me. I can't do what I want. Inhibiting the life that God desires, that Pennington desired for himself. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Our lives are, of course, not inhibited in the same way as Pennington's. But his insight, his use of this passage, reminds us that our lives are shaped by the systems and structures of this world by history we cannot change, by circumstances far greater than we have in and of ourselves to change, by the powers that Paul names, such that our decisions, even as those in Christ, our condition are limited by sin, are less than they should be, shaped by sin. The decisions themselves that we're left with sometimes are inherently sinful. Anytime you find yourself choosing between the lesser of two evils, like think about that phrase, you're choosing something you recognize as evil. That is the effect of sin in the world. In the world in which we live, however holy, however sin-resistant we might be. And we're called to resist sinful structures in the world as the people of God. Resistance to political, cultural powers of sin is part of what faithfulness is. But sin is unavoidable, inescapable. Karl Barth, describing the human situation, the burden under sin, describes any human attempt as like trying to escape quicksand by pulling on your hair, right? It's just not going to work. The whole thing is going down. Some other point of power is needed. Some outside force is required. You've not resisted to the point of shedding blood, but there is someone who has. You're all in church this morning. You know the expected solution here is right there in the reading, right? Thanks be to God, but not so fast. That solution presupposes that God can be trusted, that he's good, he's able to defeat sin. And the way that Romans unfolds raises this question. 
can he be trusted? This question is in our reading in relation to the law. Verse 7, is the law sinful? Verse 13, did that which is good, the law become death to me? Jackson Wu, writing from this honor-shame perspective, points out that these are questions about God's honor, about whether or not he can be trusted. If God gave the law and the law didn't work, what happened? If the law, in fact, increased in inflamed rebellion, then is the law good? Is God good? Is the law death-dealing? Is he trustworthy? Like many of you, I'm sure the Olympics have been a feature in our household these past couple of weeks. SUNY Lee's victory was very cool. I'm sure you're all as excited as I am about Canada's 13 medals. <laughs> One for every province and territory. It's very cute. <laughs> One of the sports I've really enjoyed watching has been judo. I don't know a lot about judo, but that's part of the appeal of the Olympics, right? You watch sports you barely understand. What I do know is that judo often involves using the weight, the momentum of your opponent against them, against her. Flipping or throwing them, pinning them. This, it seems to me, is what Paul describes sin doing to the law in Romans chapter 7. The law of God, he says, is good, is holy, is life-giving, as Psalm 119 and elsewhere in Scripture points out. How could it not be? It comes from God, who's holy and good, the author of life. But Paul's point is sin, at work in us, makes us terrible readers of the law. Sin twists the law and uses its weight against God's good purposes, against God's people. So rather than bringing life, sin uses the law to pin us in death-dealing rebellion. God's life-giving law is good, but the law of sin is at work in you and me, warring against us. Law becomes the cat's paw of sin. It's used for sin's purposes. We all have this experience. We all know how just and good standards so easily become oppressive. We all know how life-giving guidance so often animates this distrustful, spiteful rebellion. The ways resentment against what we know to be for our best and for our flourishing so easily arises produces shame, produces a sense of distance. Our text suggests that this is the law of sin inevitably at work in us. The power of sin at work in us and in the world to such an extent that it produces this despair, right? Jordan was very chill in his reading of it, but Paul says, wretched, wretched am I. God is vindicated here. His law is held forth as holy and good, but we are caught in the snare of sin. We are pinned in death. You just at that moment of despair, right? There's another twist, another turn. Thanks be to God, Paul says. The purposes of God are not undone by the power of sin. God is not surprised, not overcome by this pernicious, twisting power. God is the greater judoku, practitioner of judo. The work of God through the law, it uses sin's own presence against itself. That sin is exposed, is revealed for what it is as sin. And what's more, that our need for Christ in the law is made clear. He is the culmination of the law, the, the end, the goal, that whom the law points us toward. This is God's grand judo move, that through Christ, the law of sin is exposed, is pinned, is nailed 
to the cross and fully defeated in his resurrection. God is vindicated and God is victorious. So in Jesus, you are delivered from the power of sin. Now, in the present. A deliverance that we ache, we long to fully know, but that you can taste and experience today. Freedom from thinking and acting in ways that destroy and lead to death. You have deliverance from shame. You have healing and restoration in places of brokenness and trauma through Jesus. Those are yours by right. In Christ, as one writer put it, your life is the product of an impossibility. The resurrection of Jesus, his conquering death and the power of sin, that is your deliverance. That is God's provision for you. And that deliverance then, his victory, is the context in which you can now meaningfully resist sin. You can resist knowing that Jesus' triumph over sin and death is assured. So today, take sin seriously. That stuff will kill you. Resist it in your life. Resist its outworking in the world around you. And trust in the goodness of God, the goodness of his law. Through the gift of the law, we, we see what is good, true, just, and beautiful. God is the author of life, and his law is life-giving. But above all, put your trust in Jesus. Take Christ and his deliverance even more seriously. In Jesus, God is the author of new life. In him you have been, you are being, you will be delivered. So you can come today to Christ, to this table, with the law of sin at work in your body, our bodies of death. You can come not measuring enough, not being enough. And you can receive Jesus again, who is enough. You may feel yourself to be that disappointment that we began with, but he is not. So thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.